this is my new friend. Pete and I have kind of been acquainted a little bit in the, in the alliance, but Pete actually said he didn't recognize me at first because I didn't have my long goatee. So, uh, you know, but uh, Pete uh, serves with Envision. I'm going to let him share a lot about that. But I want you to understand something that Pete probably won't say to you, but I will. Pete is probably, maybe definitely, the most influential and sought-after mission speaker in the Alliance. If you want to hear the heartbeat of the Alliance and what it is, Pete is, is pursued so much so they restrict how many days he can travel because they would just, people at churches would just have him on the road all the time. And so that they have to protect him like that. And, and uh, not that he really needs protecting, he's a big guy. But my point of all of this is this. If you want to know the, the heartbeat of the Alliance, if you want to know the heartbeat of where we're going, listen to this man as he shares because this is where we're going as, as, a, as a church, as a denomination, as a movement of God's people, Great Commission Christians living missionally with God. This is where we're going. Amen? Amen? Amen. So listen to him. He's one of the best there is. And it's not because Pete's so good. It's because God's so good. Amen? So Pete, would you share with us? It's been uh, really great to be here uh... All the different, uh, that train ride, I, I, that was awesome. Um, we try to find ways to like, like we call them on-ramps, to get people to, to hear more about missions. And uh, that may be one of the best on-ramps I've seen in America. So uh, kudos to you guys. Um, I want to start, first of all, by saying um, thank you. Uh, I think I have the best job on earth. I love being a missionary. I love taking food to hungry people. And I'm a freak. One of my favorite things to do is take a bag chair to a place where we put in a well and just sit there and watch people drink clean water. And so I'm, I'm grateful. But I know I could not do what I do if it wasn't for people like y'all that get up every morning and you go to work, and you work hard, and you work long. And then rather than going on a longer vacation, or living in a bigger house, or driving a faster car, you choose to give to eternity and support missions. And so from the bottom of my heart, please, please accept my gratitude. You won't know the impact you've had until someday we cross that river. And you're going to have people coming up to you that are like, I'm here because of you. And you're going to be like, no offense, buddy, but I don't even know who you are. But thank you. Um, this morning, I really almost want to kind of share a little bit of a testimony of my, my trip to how I wound up in Burkina Faso. Uh, I grew up as a missionary kid in uh, Gabon. And uh, went to high school on the Ivory Coast and then came back to Naya College where I got my degree, played soccer, got my seminary, went and spent five years in Lexington, North Carolina as a youth pastor. And um, they kind of had a non-spoken rule then that uh, single males were not allowed to go to the mission field uh, in Africa. Um, and I, I was waiting for God 
to show me like lightning and this is the one you're supposed to marry. And, um, and I wasn't going to accept anything else. And that hadn't happened to me. And so uh, they kept saying, well, we can't send you because you're not married. And I kept saying, well, God's called me. He hasn't called me to marry anyone. So you're standing in the way of God's will for my life. And uh, the guy thought about it and said, yeah, I am. And I was on the field in three months. I got to the field, and actually I was going to learn French. I would, they they uh, approved me. Actually, I was the only one that's been approved for a continent, not for a country, which is kind of strange. But, um, and I say, said, we'll just figure it out where you go later on. Um, but they finally did choose a country, and so I, I was going to go and improve my French. And so I tried to get into our school in France. It didn't work. I tried to uh, go to Canada. It was too late. And finally, they called me up on a Monday, and they said, would you go to Burkina Faso to learn French for a year, and then from there you can go to the other country? I thought, yeah, definitely. So um, I packed a bag that Saturday. I flew to Burkina Faso, and um, two weeks later, I met my wife. (laughs) So um, she was with another mission, and she was teaching school, and they put her in the classroom beside the family that I was working with, and so I got to know her. And um, she's really hot. Uh, um, but I'm, I'm grateful for uh, leaders that see beyond policies sometimes. Because if they hadn't, I'm not sure I would have ever gotten married. And I don't know if anybody else would have ever stuck with me other than Alice. So um, anyways, um, so I was in Burkina Faso several months. And because I was single, I, I put protection into my life. And even if I'm not single, I should have protection in my life. But I was very... And so I had an accountability partner with another missionary named Larry Berg. And once a week, we'd get together and we'd ask the hard questions. And we'd get on our knees and we'd begin to pray. And this time became very precious to me. And on one particular week, he called me up and he said, I'm sorry, Pete, we can't, uh, we can't pray this week, but I want to take you somewhere. I said, Okay. A few minutes later, he showed up with the mission van, and I went out and jumped in, and, and he said, I, let me tell you the story. He says, you know, we're trying to plant uh, a church in, uh, in this part of Ouagadougou called uh, Sector 30, and I said, yes, I'm aware. And he says, well, you know, we have elders in that church, and one of the elders that's there um, actually has a job. In a country that's 88% underemployed, that's a big deal. So um, he said, the problem is he's the only one in his extended family that has a job. And so um, he doesn't have a lot of extra money. But he said, well, this last week, all three of his children got sick. Well, in Burkina Faso, when you don't have money, when your kids get sick, you don't go running to the doctor. In fact, outside of Ouagadougou, we have one doctor for every 42,000 people. And so... He, he, he tried to do the waiting game, hoping that his, his children would get better and he wouldn't have to spend money on medicine or on, uh, on doctor. And so um, after about three days, he realized his middle da- daughter was getting really bad. And so he went through the neighborhood and he was able to borrow somebody's moped. And if you can picture this frail four-year-old little girl climbing up on the back of a moped to hold on to her daddy. They drove about 30 minutes into a clinic. 
But it was after hours and there weren't people to greet them. And so they said, well, we'll get people, but you need to wait. And they sat in the waiting room and they waited. And Fatih got sicker. And they waited. And Fatih got weaker. And they waited. And Fatih died. In her daddy's arms. Waiting to see a doctor. They were so poor. The story goes that to get the body back to the house, he literally just tied, a family member tied this little four-year-old body on the back of his back and rode a moped back to the house. I'll never forget that morning walking into that courtyard. It was a mud courtyard in the back where there was a small mud brick house with two rooms and there was a mud fence all the way around and they had swept the clay clean and they had laid down mats and there was literally probably 60 people just sitting there very quietly. And we walked in and, and quickly the elders jumped up and came and greeted us and then they led us to the back where we knew the father and the body of this little girl was. And I can still remember walking into that door and there was no electricity. One window was open and the light was shining in and there was really no decorations on the mud brick walls except for a couple prayer cards and you couldn't see really clear. But in the back of the room stood a father and at his feet was a rolled up grass mat that I knew held the body of his daughter. And I remember standing there and feeling so weak What do you tell a father that just lost his daughter? And we went up to him and we said the greeting. And I just just felt the room was dark and I I just felt so weak. And about that time the men came in. Men of the church came in from the graveyard and they said we've been digging since first light but it's dry season and in dry season the ground gets very very hard and they said the grave isn't big enough and the grave isn't big deep enough but it's getting hot and of course they do nothing to prepare the body so we need to get the body in the ground before it begins to deteriorate So we picked up this grass mat and we carried it out and put it in the back of the van. And I began to drive and I drove snake through this village. And finally we came out to this huge, vast field. In fact, it was as far as I could see. And it was during the dry season and the harmaton, the monsoon, off the Sahara Desert had blown in and the dust, it was just literally a hazy day because the the dust was so thick and you couldn't see very far. And I remember parking the vehicle and opening the door and I jumped out of the van and my head went down and when my eyes came up, what I saw shook me to my very core as it never has before. I looked up and as far as I could see left and as far as I could see right and as far as I could see in front of me was mound after mound after mound. 
and on the mountains were a single steel rod and it came up and it had a moon and a star on it. Meaning the person buried in that grave died without knowing Jesus. And as I stood there, I began to realize what I was looking at. I began to see reality. And I realized I was looking at at a monument to tens of thousands of people that were in hell. And hell is forever. And I stood there and I could almost hear their screams. And as I began to let it sink in, it shook me to my very core and I thought I literally was going to vomit. And I remember standing there and I literally was paralyzed. And then I realized everybody else had walked on. And I couldn't even move. And I cried out to God. And I said, God, this just isn't good enough for me. And I said, God, I can't even walk. I need your strength just to walk. This family's been through enough. Give me strength to be able to walk over and stand by the grave. And he did. And I went over there and stood. And as I stood on the edge of one grave, and I, I guess we sang some songs and we put the dirt back on. And um, there was, it was really dusty and we were choking and, and uh, trying to sing. And it was dark. And I, I, just, I just said, God, this isn't good enough for me. And I was standing next to my friend Chen, who is an elder in a church. And at the end of the service, I looked at Chen and I said, Chen, we are... We're Christians. We allow women at our funerals, which a lot of religions don't. And I said, um, there are other Christian women here. Where is the mother? And he said, the extended family that weren't believers We're so ashamed of the mother because this baby's been dead 12 hours and she's still crying. And for them, that was an embarrassment. I don't know if I was sad or mad, but I think I wanted to start beating people. And then the Lord spoke to me. The Lord said, how dare you? You have no understanding of what it's like. He said, have, the Lord said to me clearly, have you forgotten that one of every three children dies between birth and 10 years old in Burkina Faso? Have you forgotten that as a mother, 
If you have three children, statistically, you're going to have to bury one of them. Have you forgotten that if you were a mother, if you were a society, mothers have to be able to get over it. So how dare you stand from the outside and condemn them? I said, God, this just isn't good enough for me. But what I heard next shook me to my very core. See, the medicine that would have saved that little girl's life costs less than $2. We let a four-year-old little girl die for $2. I would have gladly given it if I had known. But the reality is, across that part of Africa every day, There are tens of thousands of children that are dying because they don't have $2 for a bottle of medicine. And I went home and went in my bedroom and got on my knees and wept. For a little girl that I had never met. And I cried out to the Lord. And I said, God, this just isn't good enough for me. And the Lord said, it's not good enough for me either. So I'm going to ask you to stay. And that's how the Lord called me to Burkina Faso. And hardly a day goes by when I am not spending time dreaming and thinking of a way we can save just one more child. Because you know what? Jesus is still the answer. Jesus is still the answer. Jesus is the answer for, I've watched everybody else try to make an impact, but the church has to be the church. And when the church rises up, we can change that. Amen. Here's the thing. If we're going to change that situation or other situations in the world, it's going to take every member. Amen? So will you pray? I mean, really pray, not God bless this person, God bless this person, but will you get on your knees and fight like a man? Will you change your schedule and add time to pray for the lost people? 
Will you give? Give as you never have. Will you go? Some of you for 10 days. Some of you for two months. Some of you for two years. And some of you for the rest of your life. But until the church rises up. Little girls will continue to die. Because they don't have two dollars for a bottle of medicine. I mean, do you know the statistic? Today, 4,000 children will die in Africa from dirty water. 4,000! 4, another 4,000 will die of malnutrition. And 3,000 will die of malaria. 11,000 today, uh, children will die. This year, 2 million young girls will be sold as slaves. 2 million. Where is the church? This isn't a game. When are we going to rise up and say it stops now? So will you pray? Will you give? Will you go? Will you start right here in Oil City? 40,000 of your neighbors are going to hell. Is that good enough for you? Because it's not good enough for him. And he's called you here. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to look in Luke chapter 19. Because I believe Jesus is the answer. And I believe this is just a micro uh, uh, example of what he can do in a whole society. Luke chapter 19. If you've grown up in church, you know the story. Even if you haven't, you've probably heard it a thousand times and you probably all sang that song. Zacchaeus was, or don't worry, I won't sing. Uh, a wee little man, you know, that whole story. But let's look at the story because I think it's really significant and I think it's uh, applicable to right here in Oil City. Jesus, I'm going to tell the story. So just uh, follow along to make sure I'm not lying. Because I'm an African, we tell stories, right? So Jesus is in a popular time in his life, right? And he has people everywhere. And he starts to walk to Jericho. And when he gets to Jericho, everybody's coming out. Everybody wants to see miracles, right? Everybody wants to see who this man is. And people are like, maybe he's the one that's going to help us overthrow the Romans. And, you know, everybody had their own agenda. And he's walking along. And he gets to a large sycamore tree that kind of has branches probably hanging over the road. And he gets right under the tree and he stops and looks up. And here is a silly looking little man up in the tree, probably wearing a robe like me. And you know the story. 
Jesus says, come on down. I want to go to your house today. And he goes to his house, and his life is just completely changed. I'd like to look at some of the details of the story. First of all, I'd like to look at who Zacchaeus was. The Bible tells us in uh, verse 2 and 3, three things about him. First thing was, he was a tax collector. Now think about a tax collector. Who is he collecting taxes for? Rome, right? The country that was holding his people in captive. So they're the enemies of his own people. So he's rejected his family, he's rejected his friends, and he's ripping off his own people for their enemy. Not a nice guy, right? In fact, we probably call him scum, right? Well, the Bible says he wasn't just a tax collector, he was chief tax collector, so he wasn't just scum, he was chief scum. The Bible also tells us that he was wealthy. He was wealthy because he stole from his own people. I think he was up in the tree because if he had walked in a crowd, you know, your hand sometimes just automatically <laughs> flies out and slaps somebody in the back of the head. I mean, I, I haven't done that, but I'm sure Jerry has. <laughs> um, so anyways, um, and then the Bible says one more thing. In verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short. Homeboy was a little punk. And so when we look at this man, we see a disgusting little punk. Right? Is that what we can see with our human eyes? But that's not what Jesus saw. Look at verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He was wearing the mask of greed. He was wearing the mask of bitterness. He was wearing the mask of all these different things. But if you took all those masks off, more than anything was a man that just wanted to see who Jesus was. Amen? Who's the Zacchaeus in your life? See, I believe God has placed you strategically. Strategically in your families, strategically in your your communities, strategically in your schools, strategically on soccer teams. And on it, there's Zacchaeus is everywhere that that hide behind the mask of of, uh, legalism or hide behind the mask of anger or hide behind the mask of some other religion. But when it really comes down to it, there's somebody that's just really wanting to see who Jesus is. I was a high schooler and, uh, at the Ivory Coast Academy. And I left a missionary kid school where there was like four girls. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Like the girls that were my age were like four. So I'm like a ninth grader, right? And I go to this new school and there's literally a hundred Christian girls. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, right? So I get to the school and um, I heard about these things called dates, right? Um, but one thing about dates is they cost money. So the school had this program that you could work for like 15 cents an hour. And um, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, 
But when I figured out it would take me like 10 hours to buy this girl Coke, I was like, uh, I got to find another solution. So what I found out is that anything American sells. So I would go and take uh, p- people's old American shoes or old jeans or if they had a camera. I'd walk down, find students that needed money. They would give me stuff. I would go into the city and I would sell them. And then if I liked them, 10%, if I didn't, 20% came back to me. Well, I, I was doing quite well because all some people started to know me and like missionaries from like other countries would bring me their stuff, their junk, and I could get money for it. And um, so, uh, I, you know, honestly, there are weeks I do better than I do now as a missionary. <laughs> and um, what I found was uh, I had to know where things were. And so I went, I went, um, I, I met this guy named Isouf. And Isouf always knew who needed what. And so I'd show up with like a size 10 shoes and he'd be like, I know somebody's looking for a used pair of American shoes at size 10. I mean, this guy was specific. And we would go and we'd make a sale and I'd give him some, I'd take some and then we'd go back. And it was just literally amazing how this guy always knew. And him and I got to be friends and close and, and I loved Isouf. There was one major roadblock. Isouf was a staunch Muslim. Isouf, in the middle of our meetings, the call to prayer would come and he'd run off to go pray. During Ramadan, we always ate lunch together. He wouldn't eat with me. And so I came up with this, this strategy of evangelism. I call it nice Pete. Now, y'all laugh, but y'all have nice Pete theology theology of uh, evangelism too. And this is what it was. I was going to act really nice. And he would come up to me and say, boy, Pete, you're awfully nice. And I would say, it's because of Jesus. Right? You guys laugh. How many of you guys have pulled that one? Right? Right? So I played nice Pete, and I was nice my whole freshman year. And guess how many times he asked me? Zero! Sophomore year, nice. Junior year, still nice. Senior year, four years of being nice. He never once came and asked me. Senior year, I'm graduating. You can see the irony of this. I'm getting on a bus to go to the capital city to fly to Nyack to learn how to reach Muslim people and then come back, right? My best Muslim friend comes up to me, tears running down his face. He grabs my arms, and that culture, they grab like your elbows and you hold each other's elbows. And he looks at me, and this is what he says. He says, Pete, I love you. And I said... Yusuf, I love you too. He looked at me and he said, that's what I don't understand. Because you say you love me, but you also say that you're a Christian. And as a Christian, you believe that if I don't ask Jesus into my heart, I'm going to go to eternity in hell. And not once have you tried to convince me not to go to hell. 
So either you don't love me or you don't believe what you say you believe. Thank you. Amen? Nothing like being rebuked by a Muslim for not witnessing. But it's not a witnessing thing, it's a love thing. Right? He said if you were walking, he literally said this, if you were walking down the road and there were thieves that were going to beat you, I would do anything possible to get you to stop. But you haven't done anything to keep me from going to hell. See, the sad part is, Suf got killed in a war. But I am going to see him one more time. And he's going to stand before the throne. And Jesus is going to say, I know you're not. And as I drag him off to hell, my hands will have his blood. Who's the Yusuf in your life? It's not about yelling at them or screaming at them or condemning them. It's about loving them. It's about being intentional. We saw a scummy little punk. Jesus saw a man that wanted to see who Jesus was. Can we have Jesus' eyes? We go on in the story. Sorry, I'm going long here. Sorry, Pastor. I'm getting a little carried away. I also saw something else in, uh, in verse 3 that kind of took me back a little bit. He said he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not because of the crowd. Who is the crowd? Followers of Jesus! Right? They were the disciples! The 12, the 72, and, and other people, they were religious leaders! And they were the ones that were blocking his view of Jesus! God have mercy on this church. If your holy huddles are blocking somebody's view of Jesus. Amen? Amen. See, it's our attitudes. It's our self-interest. It's our selfishness that blocks people's view of Jesus. Story goes on. It says, Jesus reached a spot. He looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down. For I'm going to your house today. And he came down and welcomed him gladly. And in verse 7, And all the people raised their hands towards heaven and thanked God that Jesus was eating with a sinner. Right? Is that what it says? What does it say? What does it say? What did people do? They muttered. Right? They muttered. 
Against who? Jesus. You know, I speak in almost a different church every Sunday. And I can say this because I'm not from your church. And I don't know anything going on. And, you know, I'm the missionary, so nobody ever really tells me the truth anyway. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, you see why I never went into politics. Um, but if I was going to come up with a word to identify the American church, you know what word I would use? Mutter. We mutter. And who are we really muttering against? Jesus. We think we're muttering against a number member of the church or the color of the carpet or, or something else. But who are we really muttering against? Jesus. And guess what happens when we mutter against Jesus? People can't see who Jesus is. And the scary thing is, if the, the world was going to come up with a word other than hate, the next word they come up against us is muttering. This year, I think, I think it's this year, it's going to be the first year that there are more people that say that they're believers, but don't go to church. You know why? Our church is full of muttering. We go on. This is one of my, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Verse 8. So Jesus goes to his house and eats. In verse 8, Zacchaeus stands up at the meal. He says, look, Lord, here now, I'll give away half the possessions that I own to the poor. Amen? Amen. Guess what happened? He sees Jesus. He has one meal with Jesus and he, his whole life is transformed. He was a materialist. He rejected everything and everybody to make more money. And now he's saying after one meal with Jesus, I'm going to give half of what I have away. Amen? See, because when we meet Jesus, when we really meet Jesus, sin's just not good enough anymore. Amen? We want to be changed. And he stands up and says, I'm going to give half of what I own away. I got a question for you. When the richest man in town gives half of what he owns to the poor, are there any little girls that are dying because they don't have $2 for a bottle of medicine? Do you see Jericho is changed? That night, the hungry ate good food. They probably went out and built shelters for the homeless. The richest man in town gives away half of what he owns after one meal with Jesus. But it goes on. And he says, if I cheat anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. He's making right what he did wrong. Amen? He, is, he just doesn't even want any of his money that had to do with sin. And now... Let me ask you a question. Jericho 
becomes the first city in the Roman Empire. That's He's the chief tax collector, right? So it becomes the first city in the Roman Empire that's corruption-free. Where would you do business? Where would you do business? Jericho, right? Do you see the whole economics of a city changed after one meal with Jesus? Jesus is the answer! And that's what I believe for Burkina Faso. But that's also what I believe for Oil City. Corey? There you are. I'm charging you. But I'm also charging everybody else. Because you're doing missions and outreach. But the reality is, you're not the one, only one doing it. I'm commissioning all of you. You guys are all commissioned now. This is going to be a church that doesn't have a holy huddles and doesn't martyr and cares, sees people with Jesus' eyes. Amen? It takes every one of you. When I come back to visit, I want this room to smell. Because I want so many people that say, I'm not perfect, but I need to be loved. And I still smell like sin. But I want to go be with those people. Because I want to be loved. Amen? Amen. So will you pray? Will you give? Will you go?